Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Gil Ayal, founder and former CEO of Hyper, a marketplace for influencers. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Gil charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working as an attorney in Israel prior to attaining an MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. After graduation, Gil was COO at Mobley, a photo and video sharing platform, before going on to found Hyper. He is now head of marketing at Inspire, a new office experience developed by Silverstein Properties in New York, while also investing out of his fund, Stardust Ventures. In this episode, Gil shares the story of successfully exiting Hyper, as well as frameworks to evaluate career opportunities, how to switch into tech from non-traditional backgrounds, and the difference between the CEO and COO roles. He provides unique perspective on the realities of fundraising, building a good culture, understanding how to think about product market fit, and more. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Gil, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Today, I do two things. I My day job is I run innovation and marketing for Inspire. That's the management company for Silverstein Properties, which owns the World Trade Center and a lot of other real estate buildings. And what Inspire does is we're basically the Ritz-Carlton of residential and commercial buildings. Our goal is to understand who lives or works in our buildings and create a customized experience that is the perfect experience for those people. We do that with partnering with them, with the hospitality, with partnering with different tech solutions, hospitality organization that focuses on the experience and other things. And then in my, in the afternoons, I'm an angel investor under the name Stardust Ventures. We don't have a fund. It's just my brother and I and our own capital. We invest primarily in consumer focused startups where we can match them with a celebrity to create credibility and visibility for the brand and ideally not only give them some capital, but actually create value for the startup when we come in. So we'd love to talk to you about Stardust Ventures, but we'd also love to get your perspective on the property market as a lead-in, because obviously New York suffered terribly during COVID. Have you seen a bounce back yet as people return to offices and the city rejuvenates a little bit? Like, you know, what's your view on the market currently, given your involvement in the property side? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very different on the residential and on the commercial side. On the residential side, at least for now, we're not seeing any drop-offs. In fact, the demand is extremely high. We don't have we're at 99% fill rates in every single one of our buildings and we have thousands of units in New York. Part of it has to do with of course the positioning of the buildings as high-quality buildings and I'm sure if you have a lot of violations or if you have bad reviews on websites, it might be harder, but for buildings that are highly rated and well taken care of, very high demand. On the commercial side, we're definitely seeing and feeling the pain like everyone else. If I think that there's a shift in the way that people are thinking. In certain industries, there really isn't a need to be in the office every day. It doesn't apply for every industry, but that does apply to certain industries. And we have to adapt in a few ways. One is the owner of the buildings, we have to realize that we're no longer supplying just walls, we're supplying 
a reason to come to work and a reason why it's better for you to be in the office than at home. And we're targeting a smaller market because certain industries just don't want an office full-time or an office at all. And that's really affected the market. I think you'll see a lot of companies, one, build or hire management companies like the one that we've started under the Inspire brand. And two, convert their buildings to any other purpose possible, residential or anything else in order to avoid the decline in demand. Yeah, that makes sense. And have you seen an impact from the downturn in the tech sector on the property side? I'd love your perspective broadly on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I just read, I don't know if you guys saw this article, I just read that WeWork's valuation is, I don't know if you guys saw this, take a guess, what's WeWork's valuation today? Oh, I'm guessing sub a billion. 300 and something million. Wow, that's crazy. Right, this is a company I think was valued, I think they were valued at 40 billion or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was in the tens of billions of dollars, wasn't it? It was wild. Insane, but the, the reason is, aside from, you know, all the things, all the complaints and the issues that you could bring up with Adam Neumann and the way that the company was funded and managed is it's just simply a lack of funding within the startup space. That was a whole ecosystem, right? VCs would fund startups. They would go to WeWork and then they would make money for some of those VCs. And then they would spend their advertising dollars on Facebook and Google and return money to those VCs again. And that whole ecosystem is hurt right now. So I think I read somewhere that Israeli startups, which is one of the major channels for VCs have seen an 80% decline in funding in the, over the last quarter. That's not, that's, you know, not sustainable for any industry. And as a result, industries that serve startups are going to suffer as well. Yeah, it's a knock-on effect, isn't it? I think, as you say, that venture money has provided a false floor for, I think, a lot of different industries. But to that point, given the current state of the market, where you've seen a lot of redundancies, at larger fan companies and public companies, how would you think about positioning yourself today for a career in startups or in technology? And we've spoken a little about this in the past, but given the current climate, what would you do if you were thinking about getting into startups or the tech sector? Yeah, well, starting with, especially this applies, especially in startups, but over the years, I, you know, spoken to different people and I've come across this template for what makes for a good career start or what a place to be in. And I think there are four components in a good workplace and it applies especially for high growth areas like startups. You know, number one is, am I going to be doing something I really enjoy doing? Number two is, am I going to be working with people that I really enjoy working with? And those two things are really up to you and you have to take care of. The other two are really important and not always up to you. Is it, am I going to be working in an industry that's going to experience a lot of growth? And in that industry, am I working for someone who might win that industry? Because those two components will determine more than anything, your chances for promotions, the desire for competitors to come and try and poach you, the ability to be promoted within or change your career within the company and just have your stock options appreciate in value. All those things are absolute necessities for a young person entering a career and hoping to end up much more financially sound and to move up in the percentiles. And I see a lot of times that people make the mistake of not paying attention to those things. Now, that's especially hard in economies like right now, where who knows who's going to make it, right? It's not about who's going to grow the fastest, it's who's going to survive. 
it's very hard to see in the and then some people would say well you know what don't worry about it go work for facebook go work for google or go work for one of the bigger players but that's not safe either anymore i think facebook's now let go 24% of its workforce that's one in four people <laughs> i don't know a lot of startups who other than the ones who are shutting down that fire 24% of their workforce. So it's a really unsafe environment in general. But basically took them back to, I think, their 2020 or 2021 levels. And so you think if they've made deep cuts like that, there's probably more cuts likely to come as well, given some of the failed bets they had on Metaverse. But it's interesting you mentioned that sort of those four components of evaluation, because one of the things I've seen with the series B and C markets is stretched valuations, where the equity that would have provided some of the upside if the company was to grow, has obviously now is obviously now in serious risk of basically going to zero. And I think that's the other challenge, isn't it? How do you position yourself in this type of market if the larger corporations, public companies are making cuts, but also some of those early stage companies or mid-stage growth companies have overextended themselves really because they were planning on growth that currently isn't there? And it's on multiple layers because if you're that growing company, you're hoping that Facebook will buy you or you're hoping – and if Facebook's letting go people and doesn't have free cash, then they're not going to buy – You know, they'll buy less companies. And so it becomes really difficult at this stage to make an educated decision. The good thing is evaluations are really low. So if you do make – if you do pick a good company and you get your stock options at a low exercise price, then when things do go up, you'll enjoy significant appreciation and a much better return. My advice for someone, you know, whether getting out of an MBA right now or a few years out of their MBA is to really understand the market that they're going into. Put much more weight into the chances of this industry to become an industry of the future and for the chances of the company that you choose to work for to survive, number one, and two is be one of the leading players down the road or ideally the winner. And if you think about most industries in tech, the winner is often 10 times bigger than the number two place. So picking the winner is a really good, easier said than done, but really good way to ensure your financial success. I wanted to kind of pick on the first criteria you mentioned as well. I think that, you know, we kind of talked about that before. And, you know, we've had a number of conversations with guests on the show about thinking about, you know, life design and picking, picking roles for you. And you mentioned something that you enjoy doing. When you're counseling people, I guess, how do you kind of get to the second order of things about what you like doing? It feels there's a lot in there. It's like, what kind of, you know, what kind of tasks do you like doing? What kind of industry do you like? What kind of products do you like? There, there's kind of a lot in there. Where do you see people making good decisions there? And where do you see people maybe, maybe not thinking about this in kind of the optimum way in terms of what they would actually enjoy doing? It sounds like something that we should all have figured out, right? Everyone should know what they're good at, what they want to do, what's going to make them happy. Reality has shown that we don't always know. When I got admitted to business school, the first thing they said to me is, you need to get there and know exactly what you're recruiting for and what you want to do. And I thought I did. And then like they bombarded me with all these options I'd never heard of. And suddenly I didn't know what I wanted to do. My approach is that you don't have to know what you want to do, but there are certain things that you know that you definitely don't want to do. There are certain things that you know that you've excelled in the past. And you want to look for a place that celebrates those things, that appreciates those things. I, my first, you know, six years as a professional person were in law school, were after law school as a lawyer. And yeah, there were certain skill sets that were okay. You know, I was pretty good at reading documents and paying attention to details, but I hated every single minute. So you have to be true to yourself and say, okay, look, just because I have on my resume or in my professional history, things that appear on this job post doesn't mean that you should be in a hurry to take it. 
unless you have to, you know, pay the bills. But if you can afford to, be a little more selective. And it requires some self-reflection. It requires finding opportunities to do things that don't necessarily pay you, but give you the experience of doing it. So yes, if you spend the summer working for a VC, even if you don't get paid that much and realize that, hey, I can't stand talking to founders, it's much better to do that than to go work for them after school and find out that, wait a second, this isn't what I was hoping for. To what extent do you think when somebody is making that assessment, you trade off getting expertise within a function versus getting expertise within an industry or technology? How would you evaluate those trade-offs? Because to some degree, I learned this within consulting, it's relatively easy to learn a new industry. But once you've understood those levers, it's quite easy to move from one sector to another. But being able to talk about product or marketing and say you have expertise isn't as easy to do. It's not as easy to make that transition. And I think you've got to show a track record of success functionally. So for someone coming into the market today, even as an experienced hire, how should they think about those trade-offs and manage those? Yeah, I think it really depends on the role you're looking for and specifically the industry. I think in the startup scene, it doesn't really matter whether you worked for a startup before, so long as you have a skill set that applies to what they need. So if you're a marketing person, and you come from CPG, you'll find startups that are interested in the skill set because you probably know how to run ads and you know how to work with influencers and you know how to create messaging and all those things, regardless of the fact that you haven't worked in startups. If you're you know, a programmer, that might not be as easy, right? If you haven't worked in the specific you know, language code that they want you to know or if you don't have experience with the specific databases that they work on, those are things that are much easier to, are kind of a zero or one. Does he have that skill set or does she not? And so I think it really varies by where you're trying to get to. I do recommend to everyone to try to think about in a perfect world, where would they be if they could choose five years from now? If everything worked out, where would they be? And then ask yourself, does this role and does the experience I'm gaining right now, does that bring me closer or further away from that space? Yeah. And when you, to that end, when you were at Kellogg, you were actually one of the few folks, I think, who was very attuned to the world of startups at a time when that wasn't very common outside of Silicon Valley. So how did you manage that? What did you do to navigate those waters to position yourself for getting into the startup world? I'd like to say, you know, you're born an entrepreneur and your family values come in, but really it's it's part of that. And then the other part is like, wait, recruiting is a lot harder than I thought. I thought I'd be in really high demand. The truth is I didn't find an internship until the last week at Kellogg. Barely instant. Some startup gave me an opportunity. And it was really nice of them. But that opportunity, I wouldn't have been exposed to what an amazing lifestyle and what an amazing, exciting ride working for a startup could be. So I came into Kellogg just like everyone else. I thought I'd go into consulting or maybe go work for Microsoft or Apple, and they weren't interested. I was a guy from Israel who used to be a lawyer who wanted to work in industry we had zero experience in. So switching all three of those things, country, profession, you know, job title, and industry – doesn't really work as easily as you think, even if you have a great brand name for a business school behind you. And I just ended up applying and startups were willing to take the call because one, at the time, it wasn't as sexy as it is today to go work for a startup. We just didn't have all the options that they have today. And two is it was much easier to create relationships. Startups had these events, they have parties, you go, you network, they see who you are, not just a resume. 
And I got lucky. I got an offer from a startup to work there over the summer. And it was a great startup and really great people. And I got lucky. got acquired by Disney while I was there, which ruined my chances of coming back because they were cutting people. They weren't hiring people. But also suddenly made me appealing to all these companies that didn't want to work with me. Nobody wanted a six-year lawyer, but a, a two-month startup guy was suddenly very appealing. And so you learn that marketing is also about marketing yourself. But I did end up going into the startup world because I caught the bug. And what was really exciting to me about the startup world was the feeling that you could control your own destiny and that you'd be creating something. The jobs that I was offered during the second year were all mid-level title, junior effectively, right? Because you'd be working with someone who was there two years ahead of you. They weren't senior. So yes, you were technically as mid-level as they were, but they were your boss. You didn't really have the ability to make any decisions. You didn't really have a lot of ability to impact where the product would be going. And when I was talking to startups, they were listening and they were looking for perspective. And they were always in a struggle and in a way to, in a hunt for a way to to build something better. And so they appreciated diversity in background and the fact that I didn't come from a Google type brand name before didn't really matter as much. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because we're seeing this now. And I think this is still true to this day where earlier stage companies at the seed stage or even up to series A, I think, struggle a bit to find talent because they're so busy heads down building often. And typically they don't have a head until someone recruiting for them. And I think people underestimate how many opportunities there are in that hidden market because those startups, as you say, craving for talent who can come in and do some heavy lifting, but also provide some strategic perspective and be willing to get their hands at it. So I think there's a wealth of opportunity if you know how to look and where to look. I think sometimes people don't realize that. Yeah, they tend to recruit in a less systematic way, right? When you apply to a lot of these big companies, you go through some engine that looks at the keywords in your resume and sees if you're a good fit and all these things that if you're, you happen to be the perfect fit for the role is great for you. But if you're trying to jiggle or move, you know, to a different type of role or experience something new, then you need your persona to stand out and, and push forward. Can you actually, on the story you told about going to the networking events and meeting, you know, when you first broke into startups as an intern, pivoting from your legal background, can you talk a little bit about, you know, even your short game, your conversation with people and kind of how you spun that? I think it would be really useful as an illustration for people who are thinking about making a switch into, you know, into tech or startups from a different industry. Yeah. I mean, I, so, so I wanted to get into product management initially. I ended up in marketing, but that's where I, I started. And the way I did it was when I knew I would meet whatever companies were coming to the event or whoever I would meet, I would use their product very aggressively. I would read everything anybody had written about it on TechCrunch. I would go on the app store if it was an app and read every single negative review that they received. Wasn't too worried about the good reviews, but I wanted to see what could they be doing better. And formulate some thoughts because what happens is even when you go into an interview and a job interview, a lot of times they'll say, okay, what do you like about my product? That's all fluff. Like they don't care what you like about their product. When it starts mattering is when they say, well, what would you do to make things better? How would you improve this? Or, you know what? We're seeing a leakage in users. Do you have any ideas of what you could do? And if you actually have meaningful ideas that show that you've used the product, you're going to get their attention. So that's on the professional side. On the social side, I really had to get out of myself as someone who's like a natural introvert, really would rather just stand with his back to the wall and not talk to anyone. 
this was harder than, you know, when I was single, this was harder than going and starting conversations with women. Like I would stand there and listen in and wait for the right option and like hope I don't say something stupid. And I said plenty of stupid things, but nobody cares, right? Because it's, it's that event. You try a combination of friendly with a combination of interest in what they do. And the one thing, the one piece of advice I have is that if you let people talk about themselves, like you're letting me do right now, then they will say yes and they will do a lot of that. People love to hear their voice. So I focused on asking questions. I was like, oh, you work for this company. Is it really as good as they say? You know, is the campus like this and that? Even if I knew the answer for the questions, just let people feel like you're really genuinely interested. And a lot of times they'll, cons- you know, they'll construe that to say, okay, this person really wants it. You know, they're interested in my company. They're serious about it. Yeah. I think what you're saying is fascinating because I, I similarly hated networking, you know, and I didn't really understand networking until I came to the States. Like, you know, there are some people who are just natural at it. And that was the biggest adjustment for me in terms of suddenly having to put yourself into conversations with random strangers. And I'd imagine for the startup, startup world that you were getting into, especially at that time when it was much less developed, that was a core skill that you had to develop and really work on. But they were surprisingly open to it. It turns out that people actually want to get to know you if you put yourself out there. To that end, like, how did you find your role? Is it Mobley Media? Like, Because that role, I think that's, I remember very distinctly a photo of you with Leo DiCaprio, and I think, was it Toby Maguire and someone else? How did you find that position? And how did you also determine CEO was like the type of role that you wanted to get into? So honestly, I wish I could say it was by design. I was, I bumped into the founder in line somewhere when we started talking about what he wants to do. And I said, you know what, that's pretty cool. And I already, I'm in my second year of business school. And just to help people who haven't heard of Mobley, it was basically the concept of Instagram, but before Instagram, clearly they out-executed us. Uh, so I'm not going to claim that we won that battle, but I still had a full year ahead of me. It was like the second or third week of the second year. And I said, well, you know what, I already have a job lined up or, you know, I'm looking for a full-time job. I forget what my status was. Let me just work over this on this during the second year because you have a lot of free time. And he had this dream of having celebrities invest in his company. And I had this naive approach of saying, you know, I'm Israeli. If I knock on a door, maybe somebody will pick it up. You know, maybe somebody will open the door. And we somehow, at the time, Facebook and Twitter had just gone public or they were going public. And there was this anger within the celebrity community that they were driving a lot of the traffic to these platforms, but they were not getting any benefit from the IPOs that were happening. So I pitched him this story, you know, Kellogg 101 saying, okay, our target market are these celebrities. Their pain point is that they've been generating traffic, but they're not getting part of it. Let's give them part of it. Let's tell them that we're the next big thing and that they're actually going to get equity in the platform. And somehow we found someone who sat not far from Leonardo DiCaprio at the Laker games. And we had him just walk up to him and tell him about the story. And surprisingly, he was interested. I can't say it was by designer that any of us thought it would happen, but surprisingly, he was interested. Not the best investment he's made, but he did invest in the company. But but yeah, it was quite interesting. The role of CEO specifically, honestly, it just comes with this idea that you're the type of person who, as someone who didn't have a lot of experience in anything, you know, I studied marketing at Kellogg, I was a lawyer, didn't really have experience in anything, but I was the guy who like sees a leaky bucket and, and is the first guy to put his finger there and block the leak. So COO was kind of a role that said, okay, we have a marketing guy, we have a CEO, we have everything, but still things keep breaking and things don't work. Okay, your job is to just make 
sure everything works. And that, so I started as VP operations. And since there's really no way to promote you in startups other than just give you a better title because they don't have more money, at some point they said, you know what? You did a great job. You get to be COO. But it was the same job and the same thing. And for a while, we were doing really well. It didn't end up as we hoped. But. So, but was this, was that your first foray into the world of influencers? Because this was kind of before the notion of influence existed, really, didn't it? Was that what kind of gave you that insight to that market around celebrities driving engagement and being able to build technology around it? Yeah. So what happened with us is once we had Leonardo DiCaprio on board and we had, it was Serena Williams, Lance Armstrong, pre-drug confession and Toby McGuire, the tables kind of shifted. You know how you get into business school, you apply to all these business schools, you can't wait to be admitted, you hope that they approve you. And then as soon as you get selected, they start chasing you to because they don't because they want their numbers up. So the same thing happened with this is we had these celebrities, suddenly every agent, every celebrity on the planet was knocking on our door and asking, Hey, can you can my client be a part of this? And so we ended up doing deals with dozens of celebrities. But what I saw was suddenly that as much as they were influential, looking at their engagement on, at the time it was Twitter and Vine and, you know, platforms like that, there was this group of people that was far more influential than these celebrities, people who are native to these platforms. And it, it occurred to me that I shouldn't be wasting time chasing these big celebrities. I should be focused on finding these people online that are influential, but there was nothing. Nobody knew the term influencer and nobody thought of it that way. And we started bringing them in droves into our app so that they would drive their followers. And at the time, the social networks weren't very sophisticated. It was very easy to get traffic off of their platform. And we drove millions and millions of new users using that. And then at some point when I left the company, I knew I had to be in that business. So that led for me to start Hyper and say, okay, how do we build a tool that actually identifies and evaluates who influences what? But you're right, that's where it started. Yeah, so you got that insight from Mobley, and then you went on to found Hyper. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey of sort of what gave you the confidence to to make that leap to go from being a CEO to going to actually starting your own business? I wish I could tell you that starting Hyper came from this utter confidence that I knew what I was doing and that I would be successful. What had happened was that I had decided to leave Mobley. It was clear that it wasn't going in the right direction. If you want to know why, you can Google it and find out a little bit about what the founder did. But I had a very good relationship with the investors. And when I said that I was leaving, they said, we want to be involved with you. We'll give you the first few hundred thousand dollars. Go start something. And I was looking for what should I be starting. And I knew that there was something in this world of influential people online. But I didn't want to just start a matchmaking agency. Those were starting to form. What I wanted to do was focus on tech. How do I identify and how do I measure performance in this space? How do we know which influencers we should be working with? How do we know how to measure whether working with them was effective? So that's what led to Hyper being born. And initially, people thought I was nuts. Why would anyone want to hire people online to talk about their product when they can simply go to Google or Facebook and pay them some money and they will advertise for them? And honestly, sometimes I thought I was nuts too. But the fact was that when we started running campaigns with these influencers, we saw results that were extremely better than what we could achieve with traditional digital marketing. So we felt like there, there was something there. But the first two years were all about exploring and trying to prove to ourselves that this is really working. Consistently saying, okay, let's test this. Let's try to run this campaign. Let's see what happens if we include a call to action. Let's see what happens if we have a lot of small ones, if we have one big one. And at the time, it was kind of a free-for-all. Nothing you did, you could 
Nothing you would do could fail. Every influencer activation worked. The social networks were really naive. They didn't really understand how we were sending traffic off the platform. The only part where I was naive was to think that would last. So as the years went by, that became harder and harder. But initially, we felt like we were de-risking the business every campaign that we did. Every time that we predicted something and we proved that it worked out, we said, okay, we're on to something. And that's what gave you confidence, but to tell you that I slept well, no. I'll come to that in a second, because I think being a founder is exceptionally stressful. But if you hadn't had investors suggest that they were going to give you money to invest, would you have still made the same decision to found a company? Or was that a key aspect of being willing to step out and found that business? It's, it's hard to look back today and tell you I know the answer for sure. I want to say, yes, I would have founded it anyways. Having that initial runway was really important to me. As someone who didn't have a tremendous amount of money, you know, I was in debt from business school. I didn't have, you know, anyone who could give me millions of dollars or anything like that, other than if it was to start a business that I could really justify would return, would provide them with a positive return. So I was really, I really wanted to do it, but I was terrified to do it. And I was fortunate enough that I had some people who believed in me. And that's kind of been something that, that I recommend to everyone and have tried to become one now that things have progressed in my career, which is find those people who believe in you and are going to help you so that you avoid the worst case scenario. So I was looking for ways to do risk it for myself, but that's part of my personality. I think most founders wouldn't have waited. I don't know if I wouldn't have. I did have some job offers. I wasn't too excited about accepting them. But I was very nervous. I had I already had one one son at the time, and I was very nervous about what would happen if it wouldn't work out. So it's hard to look back and tell you 100% that if I didn't have the funding, I would have done it. It's Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? But it's fascinating to hear you tell that story because it sounds like the first two years were very much about experimentation, trying to find product market fit. Did you have a clear sense of when you had found it? Like at what point were you like, yep, yeah, this is the right track for us. This is the right product for this market as it was at the time? Yeah, I think product market fit, finding product market fit is really what everybody should be doing early on. And exploration is just part of the early days of a startup. For us, what happened was I think we found tremendous market fit. Our first five years were insane growth led with very little marketing effort because we really hit where the market needed, which was analytics and understanding of how these campaigns are working as people were spending more and more money in the influencer space. What we didn't anticipate was that the market would shift. Once the social networks changed the way that their algorithms worked from linear algorithms to ones that determine which content gets more viewership, our algorithms could no longer predict how well things would work. So yes, we found market fit, but the market shifted. Yeah. And just to make sure I understand, so would you work with the influencers and brands to basically match those two together, but then see how well products would perform given an influencer's campaign. Can you sort of give us a little bit of an insight into like how the product worked? We didn't work with influencers at all, and that's what differentiated us in the space. We said influencers are a commodity. There's an endless amount of them. We work with brands so that they know that we're always on their side. And we were in a data analytics platform that helped to do two things. One is analyze the audience that follows a specific influencer and how they react to that influencer speaking about different topics across you know millions and millions of these influencers and then help the brand identify the ones that are most likely to be successful for them as marketing, as influencers, or at the time we just we thought it was like a marketing channel. And then once that campaign has been running, measure the performance for them in a way that helps them focus their 
efforts on the ones that are being more successful. I can imagine that some influencers who, and maybe the more savvy ones who had, you know, their pricing frameworks and their own sort of packaged story about how successful their word of mouth is and their followers, et cetera, didn't like necessarily having a check and balance on that point of view. But maybe the, but maybe the, the, for some, it was kind of a validation that, that they were as effective as they said. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that dynamic on the influencer side? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point that we recognized as we were going. We were really concerned, like influencers are going to hate this. And what we found was in an industry where the brands completely distrusted influencers who were sending them fake information and misrepresenting how much audience they had, there was nothing, no better publicity than an influencer saying that hyper sucks. And so our dream was for Kim Kardashian to get her hyper report and say that this is complete nonsense. She never did, unfortunately. But yeah, I think one thing you learn about marketing is that sometimes things that you think are going to be really good for you don't have much of an impact. And sometimes things that you really dread actually create a lot of attention and that attention is really valuable for you. So when influencers started saying that our product wasn't any good, it actually had a really good impact our industry or on our potential customers who were already distrusting of the influencer. It just validated the need for our product. So you needed Kim Kardashian to be an anti-influencer, basically. You kind of wanted like the negative from her. I wanted her to be her. an anti-hyper, you yeah, know, anti- saying that we yeah. suck, but uh, she just ignored us. So <laughs> unfortunately, as much as we tried to annoy her. Yeah, um, yeah. So you said the market shifted. Was that shift purely technological or were there other factors? And how did you respond to that shift? Like, What kind of action did you take? Well, the market shifted in a few ways. One is the technological side. The social networks changed the way that their algorithms work. But more importantly, they changed their attitude about how, who can run marketing on their platforms. And platforms like ours that were not generating revenue for Facebook and for other platforms were something that they didn't really like. And honestly, trying to avoid any lawsuits here, their behavior in my perspective was very predatory and inappropriate, but I can't afford to go and sue Facebook. They did anything from approach people who worked for us and trying to offer them jobs. I've heard stories of people who were for us being threatened that they won't be able to work in the industry. We received a call from somebody at Facebook threatening to sue us and saying that we should expect a letter that never arrived, but then go raise capital when you have to disclose to investors that somebody from Facebook called you and said that they're going to sue you. So they changed their attitude and you have to go fight one of these big giants. It's very hard. Even if you're in the right or you believe you're in the right, you're just not going to convince your investors to go fund a lawsuit against them. And you're not going to convince any new investors to invest in your company once somebody, you know, a gorilla, like even like sniffs in the direction of I might sue you. So I think this is like an excellent segue into ask you as a CEO, that must have been very stressful, but I'm guessing that was one of many stresses you had to deal with as founder and CEO. So tell us a little bit about how different that role is as CEO and founder compared to your prior role as CEO, having moved up the ranks. It's incomparable. The stress level of being number one guy is not something you can compare to being number two or definitely not anything below that. Everything is on your shoulders. And so when you get that phone call, even if you know you're right, you're very careful not to say the wrong thing and not to anger Facebook. And then you question yourself whether you spoke properly and whether you knew the right thing to say and whether anything you said is going to get you in trouble with them. And so it's this whole thing in your head. 
all the while you have to be the perfect cheerleader, walk out smiling, tell everybody that everything's okay, calm your employees that their job is safe. And depending on when, it gets really hard to do that. I had about 50 employees towards the top of the company, and we were encouraged by investors to continue growing and spending. And that's what we did. And they promised us that more money was coming. So we were expecting a big fundraise to arrive. And then two months before that fundraise, we're already depleted most of our ca capital. You find that the biggest investor is backing out. And not to, anything to do with you, stuff to do with their fund and how their other portfolio companies are doing. And now you have to let 25 people know that they're losing their job because otherwise your company will run out of money. It's not something you can compare to any other level of stress that I've ever been in. Definitely not, not as the CEO, right? Definitely not in management roles, but secondary management roles. Yeah, it's, and it's quite lonely as well, isn't it? I think. It's very lonely. <laughs> I encourage people to join communities. There, today, there are a lot more CEO-related communities. WeWork was really good at building those things. Obviously, now they're financially, they're failing and, you know, the industry's struggling and I don't know how long, whether or how long they'll be around for, but seek those communities and support other founders because even the people who care about you don't understand what you're going through. It's, to me, it's incomparable. The only things I can think of from a stress level are really extreme things like combat or things like that. Not that you're going to die, but that so much relies on your decisions. You have to make so many decisions with limited information. And if you make a bad decision, it impacts the lives of a lot of people that you care about. But it also impacts how you view yourself because you build yourself into the CEO. You become one with the company, one with that role. And if you don't have a smile on your face, people are starting to be worried. And if you say something silly, because we all do sometimes, then people associate it somehow with your company. It's very hard to detach. And not everyone in your life will know how to support you with all the stress and challenges that you're going to face. So it becomes very lonely. The only other people who typically will know are other CEOs. It's amazing, isn't it, as well, the outsized influence you can have on your organization, because people mimic what you say and do, or they are, this is where hierarchy really comes into play. You can sit there and say, it's a flat organization, but if you as CEO say something, people react almost immediately. So you have to be very careful about how you direct team members because of the outsized impact you can have. Completely. And it's not even about how you direct them. Sometimes it's, you might be upset about something that happened at home. But, the, but you walk in and you don't say good morning like you used to, people are going to start wondering what's happening. Is something wrong? Is And it depends on the time. If it's a bad time in general in the market, they'll immediately assume something's wrong. Right. So you have to be very careful. And a lot of times you know something's wrong, but you don't want other people to know. And you figure you'll have to fix it. But the last thing you need is everybody focused on that during that day. So it's very stressful. If you asked me today, I probably wouldn't do it again just because of the level of stress. They came along with it and I'm 45 years old now. I don't know if I have it in me to, to do another one. But the flip side of it is that it's a level of experience that you just can't experience doing any other role. The control, the decision-making, the rewards for when you do something right. I just don't know any other way to experience that. In addition to finding a good community of people to talk to because it's lonely and having that similar perspective is rare, anything, any other tips you would have for other entrepreneurially minded people on how to manage stress, having kind of been through it and what, anything else that worked for you? Yeah. So number one is I really recommend finding a mentor who is interested in you, right? Who's the business matters to them, but it's you, they believe in you, whether they have a lot of money to give you 
more, more importantly is the empathy and the wisdom. Somebody who's gone through it, somebody who's done it. For me, that was extremely valuable. I was really lucky to meet these two guys, Charlie Fetterman and Larry Wagenberg, who, who run Silvertech. And they were, I chose them. I don't know if they chose me, but I was like, okay, those are going to be my mentors and a lot of other good mentors, but those two became a very meaningful part. And I, you know, got an office right next door to them. And I was there anytime something bad happened, anytime something good happened. And what they really served for was like, they're really good at taking you out of crisis mode and helping you see reality. There was one occasion where I found that one of my employees had been stealing from the company, really significant employee. I had to fire him, let him go on the spot and, you know, a lot of other things. And I was hysterical because I knew everybody would show up the next day and I'd have to explain where he is. Nobody knew anything that happened. This was literally like I found out on the spot, had to make the decision and do it. And I remember walking into Charlie <laughs> and telling him, and I was white, you know, I was ready to pass out. <laughs> um, and he said, okay, you have two things. One is, here's, we Googled and he said, list of 100 employment law firms. And he said, pick one. I guarantee you they're dealing with 50 of these cases. So pick one, hand it over and go build a company. Two is you have 30 minutes to feel bad for yourself. Come back here and get ready to run the company. And that's what I did. I, you know, I walked out, got a f- breath of fresh air, gave myself 30 minutes to feel bad for myself and came back. And he was just very good at one, letting you know you're not alone. Other people have experienced this. But two is not letting you drown in this desperation that's very easy to drown into. The other thing is find an activity that forces you to think about something else. For me, I couldn't watch TV anymore. Like I'd be watching TV, but I'd be thinking about my startup. I had to go play basketball with a bunch of guys who would beat me up as we were playing. Not that I'm a very good basketball player, but when I was playing basketball, I couldn't afford to think about my startup. My mind was about the game. Find something that forces you to detach. For me, yoga and all that other stuff, the worst thing in the world, because I was just sitting there trying to do it while thinking about, oh, I need to do this. And what about that? And what if this is something that, you know, if I could ride a roller coaster for like an hour straight, that's what I would do. Something that doesn't allow you, your mind to think about. I'm sure the exercise probably didn't hurt either. No, but I got injured like all the time. So (laughs) (laughs) And then COVID ruined everything. You said you don't, you may not want to be a CEO again. I'm guessing that you wouldn't be able to play basketball in the same way you did five or 10 years ago either. Now we're all in our mid 40s. Probably just as bad as I was back then, but maybe they'll be forgiving. They'll see an older guy. When you were CEO, either at the time or in retrospect, do you think there were certain principles that you tried to adhere to when you were building your team to the 50 or so people that it was? My belief is, and it is today with Inspire as well, is that employees are only as good as they are motivated. If people don't love coming to work, they're not going to give you their best self. So my goal with Hyper was one. When I hired, I glanced at the resume, but motivation was the number one factor for anybody being hired. If they said, this is always what I wanted to do. I love this space. This is what I want to do. And they said it convincingly. That was much more important. Now, obviously there are certain roles where that doesn't apply. You know, our developers had to go and be computer scientists, right? But generally speaking, if it's something that I think you can learn on the job, I'd much rather find someone who's extremely motivated to get rid of toxic people. Every place has toxic people who only see what's going to go wrong, who convince people that something bad is going to happen, that don't like somebody. I That was my number one no-no. You want to get fired? Be a toxic person. Our environment, whenever we showed up, was a great environment. 
and then celebrate your employees in and outside of the workforce. What if what they've <laughs> one have a culture of celebrating what they've achieved in the workforce? If somebody made a big sale, <laughs> sorry, if somebody made a big sale, if somebody you know, if the development team built something that was really hard to build or that we've been waiting for, celebrate it and make a point of celebrating it. And two, know what's going on in their life. Be friendly with them. Be interested. Obviously, not more than what they want to share. But if somebody had a baby born, send them home. Don't let them come to work. Even if they show up, tell them, no, you're, <laughs> it doesn't matter that your wife's home. You're going this week. I don't want to see you. Those things are things that people never forget. So know what's going on. Know what makes them tick. I don't think as a CEO, you have to be everybody's best friend. But if you're the type of CEO who only cares about performance and doesn't care about them, then the second the better thing will shows up, they'll leave you. And the one thing I was really proud of about at Hyper is for the first five or six years until things started going south, we didn't have a single person join and then leave. Everybody stayed. And so that environment... <laughs> which we have now at Silverstein, we're working on building the same thing. That environment, I think, got us, one, the best people we could, got the most out of them, got them to bring their friends to come over. Whenever there was an opening, I didn't have to pay anybody to recruit. People were sending me, people were sending me candidates by the line. So really, really believe in workplace environment. And at the time, nobody worked from home. Right? That was a very rare thing. At the time, everybody worked there. I think it's a lot harder today when people work from home. But I think you have to make sure that people have some touch points, that they meet in the office once or twice a week, that they feel like they're part of something, not just a lot of individual contributors. How did you take the pulse of the team? So how would you weed out those toxic people? Because I presume as CEO, you're in meetings with senior leaders a lot or working, talking to investors or talking to clients. How, so how do you figure out who are those people that are disruptive to the culture you're trying to build? And how do you make sure you're attuned, as you say, to the less visible signs of someone's needs as an employee? On the toxic side, most people tend to disclose that they're toxic simply by being toxic, right? So when one employee would complain, it's one thing, but if you start hearing a lot of complaints and you start paying attention, or a lot of them would literally do it in front of you, whether they would belittle another employee or they would just keep talking about how things aren't going to go well and there's no chance. So that personality side is very easy to find. As far as the pulse on how people are doing, it starts with simply making sure that at least once a week you stop by and say, hey, what's up? How's everything? Show them that you know what they're working on. You Don't ask them how are you doing or what's your progress. Don't ask for a report. Just say, hey, I know what you're working on. And this guy said you did a great job. Or I really liked what you said at that presentation. Make them feel like they can talk to you. And I can't say I always you know, new, but I also told everybody on my team is like, if you hear something, if you know something, then act on it. You don't need to ask me if you, you're going to give somebody a day off. If somebody needs a day off, give them a day off. And we didn't count. Like one of the things we don't, we never did was count how many days off somebody took. If you're doing a great job, great. I don't care. Do it, you know, and take some time off. So I can't say we always knew, but we, the culture itself was one where people hung out. We talked, we would eat lunch together. And so if somebody, you know, somebody's wife was pregnant, it often came up. If somebody was going through a hard time, it often came up. And I can't tell you for sure that I got all of them, but. How, it sounded like you're all co-located in New York. How do you adapt that approach to remote world where often teams are either hybrid or completely dispersed? So I was blessed to sell the company two weeks before COVID broke out. 
no one knew. And I was even more blessed that they didn't want me to stay on because the company that acquired us was a competitor and they already had a CEO. So I and another and one other Kellogg alum actually were the only two that didn't continue with the acquired company. And it was great because I was tired and he was he had an offer from a big company that he wanted to take. So the timing was perfect. Two weeks later, COVID. Like we had no idea. So I never managed a company in that situation. However, at Silverstein, I can see all of our tenants dealing with that stuff. I think the first thing you want to ask yourself is what kind of a company is this? If you're a law firm, it may be harder to have people work remote than if you're a tech company. So am I the kind of company that could really work with, with people being remote? Um, and can I get the same level of production? There are certain companies that absolutely can. There are a lot of companies that absolutely can. Now, if you can't, this is the point where you need to ask yourself, how do I get people to come here without making them feel like it sucks working here and I have to come there all the time where my friends don't have to come to the office ever and so forth? And that has to do with the culture that you build, the fact that people recognize that a lot of good things in life start in the workplace. A lot of people meet their partner in the workplace. A lot of people make their best friends in the workplace. And one of the biggest complaints we see with COVID is boredom, is not boredom, sorry, loneliness, boredom too, but loneliness. People, I feel it the same way. I go into the office two or three times a week. But before I did that, I was at home watching TV and just felt lonely. I had no one to talk to. So create an environment where when people come to the office, they come to the office at the same time and create a reason for them that's enjoyable. Like don't just bring them to work in the office. Just say, hey, on the days that everyone's in the office, we're buying lunch. So we can all sit and have lunch. And there's a happy hour on Thursday. So Silverstein, as the landlord, we're supplying that to our tenants, right? We're saying you're too small to maybe worry about lunch or to worry about having a, a party or bringing somebody to perform. But your employees are going to get access to the things that we organize for the entire building so that you can create that environment. We have a company that we started called Dojo, which actually does something really cool. It if the employees are willing to, they can allow it to look into their email address. It sees which employees they're most friendly with, and then it tells them to come to work on the days that the other employees are also at the office. You know, So there isn't a perfect solution, but we do look for ways to make the in-office experience something that you value. The other thing I would say is, you know, especially with the younger generation, make sure work is also social. Like, yeah, if everybody comes and sits at their cubicle and they never see each other, it's going to be the same as if in the past I would say avoid group meetings. No, make sure that there are small meetings where you engage with people and you hear other opinions and you feel like you're part of something. There isn't a great answer to that question. We're all struggling with it. Well, it's almost as you're saying this stuff, it's, it's like people are having to relearn that muscle or rebuild that muscle of what it's like to work in office because I think everyone's become so used to just working in solitude at home and doing meetings remotely, you have to consciously make that effort to get everyone back together, as you describe. Changing tack a little bit, tell us a little bit about your experience of selling the company. And what was that like to go through that process? It's challenging. You know, we, specifically for Hyper, Hyper had been past its peak. So the industry had changed. We'd reached like close to the $10 million AR mark two years earlier. And we were in this slow decline, struggling to to grow primarily for two reasons. One, it was harder to raise capital. And two, is the market had shifted and the value proposition was no longer as valuable. If I had accepted offers two years prior, I would have had some very angry investors because they all said, no, keep growing and you'll do really well. Now, two years had come past, the offers we had were significantly lower. And I mean, by two, threefold lower than the ones that we had. 
And again, the investors weren't happy. Why didn't you sell two years ago when you should have sold? So it was all in all, I mean, look, it helps you financially. It wasn't the type of sale where I can say, oh, you know what, I'm done. I don't need to work ever again. But it was a nice financial bump that I hadn't before had in my bank account ever. And it allowed me to do certain things like invest in other startups and and buy certain things that I wanted, though not go crazy. But it was very disappointed. It wasn't the celebration that I hoped it would be. My mom always jokes it was like my wedding. You know, it was everybody was happy it happened, but everybody was complaining about the size of the checks. So it just wasn't the type of sale where you say everybody was super happy. Everybody made some money, but it wasn't. It was a stressful event, one where with a lot of uncertainty because there's always that voice that says, no, the market's going to bounce back. And if you just wait a little bit, then you'll get a better offer. But at some point, you have to just make a decision with limited information. And I said, you know what? Where the market is, where I think it's going, and most importantly, where I am in my life, where I think I've just given this everything I can, now's the right time to do it. Yeah, no one rings a bell when, when the market hits the top or the bottom, do they? What was the first thing you bought yourself after you sold? You'll laugh at me. Have you ever seen those massage chairs? Cost like a thousand bucks in the stores. And we were little. We were little. We would sit there until they kicked us out of the store. So I bought one of those and I bought this 80-inch TV that's behind me. And I, honestly, those are the only two out-of-the-ordinary things I've bought since then. It's not my thing. Not that, it, not that I made enough to buy a, bas- a professional basketball team, though I did pretend to on April 1st. But the chair and the TV, definitely good buys. Was the chair to help you recover from the basketball injuries you got while you were trying to de-stress from <laughs> That's BC. what I tried to tell myself, but it was really just to, to calm eight-year-old Gil who got kicked out of the store for sitting there for like two hours and just breaking their chair. That's a great ambition. Like a massage chair. I love it. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned during this, you told us a little bit, I don't know if you want to share a little bit more. You mentioned, you know, as you said, perhaps it wasn't the result everyone had expected. What was it like managing some of the investor side of things, the investor relationships? Because again, it's one of those things I think people don't think about when you're a CEO. And it's one of the many things you have to worry about is the investor side. You know, investors are people. I'm happy to say that most of the investors ranged between, I'm happy for you and for us that we're going to make two or three times our money to ambivalent. Okay. You know, 2X or 3X doesn't really make a big difference for me to how could you sell the company without asking me first? And, um, no matter how big their holdings were. And there are a few investors that still don't talk to me today or that I've heard will say bad things about me because they weren't involved in the decision. But at the time, you know, you have your board and then you have a lot of smaller investors who put in 25K or 50K and you just can't get everybody's agreement. So there's always going to be somebody who's happy or unhappy unless you sell the company for billions of dollars and then everybody's going to be happy. Or maybe not. I don't know. I've never done it. Maybe even then somebody's going to be unhappy. For me, it was a really tough thing. The first year, I didn't celebrate the sale. I mourned the relationships. People that you thought were close friends thought that you were, you know, just reacted in in a very negative way. And that included, you know, some of the senior employees as well, who unfortunately didn't make as much money as you would hope that they would make and you intended for them to make. You know, we all thought that someday we'll sell this for a billion dollars. And in my mind, we all were, you know, on an island together that we own that we got to in our yacht, but we didn't get there. Not everyone reacted the way that you would hope. And there's a saying, you know, in Hebrew, don't judge people when they're drunk. Don't judge people when they're talking about money and don't judge people when they're angry. So this one has money and anger in it and no alcohol in my case, but I don't know about theirs. So I try to be forgiving. And when I do see people, I'm not angry about people who reacted negatively. 
but it, it was painful. It was definitely painful. If you were to build a business today, would you still go down that path of building a venture-backable business, or would you do it differently, given the fallout from your experience? Personally, I'm at the point where I think I wouldn't build a venture-backed building. I would definitely start a company that I could fund myself, or maybe with like a close friend, or <laughs> sorry, maybe with a close friend or something like that. But that's more about my personality. The stress level of running a company today, I'm just not in the mindset to take on. I really enjoy seeing my kids are 7 and 11. I don't want to take on another commitment where they'll be 17 and 21 when I'm done. So, and I get to see them all the time and we're like, I know everything that's going on. We're very close. I just don't want the, to pay the price of a venture back company. That's not to say that you shouldn't build a venture back company. It's just a zero or one sum game. When you fund the company yourself and you're building a company that's based on how much profit can I generate? You are taking a risk that you can handle you're growing it, and if things go south, you can fix them and go on. With VCs, if things go wrong, it's very hard to pivot. I know everybody talks about a pivot, but it's very rare to see successful pivots. They do occur, but it's very hard. So it's kind of a one-shot thing, and if you're able to handle the stress of something like that, then definitely do it. I am no longer in that position. You said when we were talking before that you might consider, under the very ideal circumstances, being a number two again. Can you talk a little bit about what those circumstances would need to be? Yeah, absolutely. Number two is a whole different story because as I said, the level of stress is completely different. If I thought there was a company that had found market fit, but isn't executing properly, meaning for example, there's a ton of demand for the product, but the product isn't good enough, or the serv customer service isn't good enough, that's where I would gladly become number two and let me help you fix that. But if the company is pivoting or looking for market fit, that's probably not something I'd want to do right now. Not because, not because it's the founder's fault or because I look down on those situations. I was in that situation just because it's a really tough and demanding situation that I feel like I'm too old for at this point. Yeah. It's a real, it's a, you've really got to be all or nothing, haven't you? I don't think you can half, half heartedly dive in, but given what you've learned as a CEO, do you think you'd be able to be, perhaps more effective or more efficient or, you know, some of the mistakes that I think are inevitable when you're a first time CEO, you can avoid. Do you think that might help you if you were to do it again? And whether that be venture back or. I would be a much better CEO today than I was definitely at the beginning. Looking back at some of the decisions I made, I'm just like, if you put me on under oath, I wouldn't be able to explain why I chose to do this and not that, even though they came with full conviction at the time and, I think I would be much better today. And that's part of the reason why a lot of funds will say we try to invest in second or third time founders and also why it's not the end of the world if you fail. Like I think the industry understands that you might fail and learn and become better. It doesn't mean that you're no good. So yes, I 100% I think I'd be much better one at evaluating people, hiring and firing quick, de-risking ideas, under testing them quickly and making sure that we're focused on proving a point and not, you know, hearing different ideas and wasting time on them without actually evaluating them first. So there are a lot of things I would do a lot better. I still think I would suck at raising capital. I was never good at it. So that part, if whoever wants me to start a company, somebody else is going to need to do that. Yeah. That's awesome advice. I'm conscious of time. Andy, is there anything else you want to dig into before we move on to the next segment? 
you know, we got we had a lot of good stuff that we talked through. The one thing that we talked about before that that I'd love to maybe touch on quickly before that last segment. You know, we talked a lot about shows like this. There's a lot of survivorship bias. I know you're an investor across you know 30 companies and kind of have seen multiples more than that in terms of being in the startup ecosystem. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe other examples and maybe how that's informed your view on what makes a good founder or a good startup or, or any other patterns that you've seen over the past few years? Yeah, the biggest pattern for someone like me who's an early investor is the person. The pattern that I've seen with every single startup I've invested in, every single early stage startup is that whatever they show their early investors is not what they end up doing. And not because they're liars, not because they're trying to steal your money, because it's one thing to build a business plan. It's one thing to make a presentation and it's one thing to be an industry expert. And it's a whole different thing to launch a product and realize that the market reacts in certain ways that you couldn't predict. And so when you invest early, you have to assume two things. One, I need to invest in the best people that I can. And two, plenty of them are going to fail, not because you didn't invest in the best person, because like, that's just how it works. A lot of people will fail. A lot of startups will fail. The market is built that way. And I had a wonderful investor, unfortunately passed away, who had invested in about 100 startups. And he said to me, you know, Gil, of the 100 startups I invested in, 90 are gone. Eight gave me like two or three X returns. And two gave me 50 X returns. And that's how I made my fortune. So uh, as an investor, it's really, and he was an early stage investor. As an investor, it's really about, you know, finding those superstar, highly motivated, highly creative people who are going to figure it out. And it doesn't matter what their presentation says today, unless it suggests that they're completely clueless. But if it suggests that they're intelligent, that they're thinking about things, that they're ready to adapt, those are the people you want to invest in. And if I could... I would copy his model. I just don't have as much money as he did, but I would invest in a thousand startups that way. I just meet talented people all day long, say, this one looks like he's going to succeed. I'll give it to them. This one looks like she's going to do well. I'll give it to her. And I really believe in that early stage because the outsized returns make everything worthwhile. Let's jump into our last segment, our quick fire questions. First off, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? The biggest factor for me in success in business in general as a startup founder and I recommend this to every single founder, is to identify something about the industry that you know that other people don't know. If you walk into a business meeting, an investor meeting, a sales pitch, and you leave them thinking, oh, I didn't think about it that way, you are going to be remembered and you are going to be effective. And I remember one of my investors saying to me, like, I, by the time you had pitched me, I'd heard about influencer marketing a thousand times. I was so sick of hearing about companies in this space. But none of them told me that influencers were a commodity. They all celebrated influencers. They all chased the big influencers. And you said to me, no, they're worthless. A new one's going to pop up tomorrow. And that was the reason why I chose to invest. So having an insight, figuring something out about your industry, about the meeting or about what you're going to be doing with that person that they haven't thought of is a great way to gain their respect, gain their attention and <laughs> gain their attention and get them interested in investing in you. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid, given what you know now? Lay off the hair gel to start. I wish I didn't have any hair 10 years ago either. I think the biggest thing I would tell myself is that failure is going to be part of this process no matter what. 
And I need to work on myself to accept the fact that there's always going to be failure. No single day is going to be just successful. And that the failure is outweighed by the success. It's not a, I need to be sad about my failure. Now I can be happy about my success. Now I need to be sad about my failure. You have to take a broader holistic approach and give yourself some freedom, cut yourself some slack. One day is going to be bad. You know that it's behind you and the next day is going to be a good day. And I wish I had been able to follow that advice early on and not just torture myself with the bad days. What is something you used to believe that you no longer believe? Fake it till you make it. <laughs> We've spoken about this. You know, the startup industry is filled with the statement with people who say fake it till you make it. This idea that if you continuously project success and eventually things will work out and you'll do very well. And what we've seen is that sometimes that works, but we've seen that if you say that enough, a lot of founders will take it too seriously. And we've seen, what was the name of that medical startup? I always forget. Oh, Theranos. Theranos. Yeah. And then we have my former office mate, allegedly Charlie Javits with Frank and where supposedly they created fake users on, on their platform. And obviously we work. Founders will take that seriously. When you say that statement, some people will understand that it means to be positive, to believe in yourself, to demonstrate how close you are to success. And some people will completely create a sham. And that's what that's the type of person who's going to be attracted to it. So that's a statement that I used to say all the time. And I'm actively working to delete those quotes from the web. Just kidding about the last part. But yeah, definitely disagree with that statement today. Yeah. What don't most people understand about your role as CEO? I think the glory, it's very easy to see the glory and it's very easy to be biased based on all the success stories. I think people don't understand how few of these CEOs actually end up reaching those success stories and the process that they have to take. And there's this famous graphic that shows the path to success and what people think it is. It looks like a straight line, but what it's really like is like this squiggly line with circles and you fall back and in, and I'll send it to you guys afterwards. But People don't understand that it's it messes up your entire day. There's no single moment of quiet, ups and downs. Not everything depends on you. It's really like being inside a whirlwind. And outside, it looks like, oh, you know, you start a company, everybody admires you, you make millions of dollars, great. The truth is very far from that. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't believe? That hiring people based on motivation versus experience is the number one driver for success. I think the entire hiring industry in the U.S. is based on algorithms that will read job posts and will match and will match resumes to them. And I remember reading somewhere this funny quote that said, 93% of resumes have at least one fact that is untrue, as opposed to 7% that are completely made up. So it's very hard to trust these resumes. And it's really a measure of how good you are at writing a resume and then how good you are at interviewing. But the truth is that, at least for me, whenever I've hired people that had a ton of motivation, nobody looked at the resume two days later. What's your favorite under-the-radar social networking hack? So this is a thing I tell people who want to get a lot of engagement on their social posts. There are two things you can do that people never do, and they, it's very counterintuitive. One is you can mispronounce a word comically. If you create a video on Instagram or on TikTok and you say, I'm very comfortable, the amount of people that will take to the comments to tell you how it's really pronounced and to mock you for it is insane. And that will trick the algorithm into thinking that there's a lot of engagement around your post. The second one is to intentionally make a small mistake. 
For example, take a fact that everybody knows and, you know, round the number up instead of down or something like that. There is nothing people on social media love more than to send you to go Google a fact. And in doing that, they'll engage with your post and again, lead the algorithm into thinking that it's a very popular post that everybody's reacting to. So counterintuitive, but that's how I help people on social media. If you want to get a lot of followers and attention, try it. It works. What is the most important principle to be a successful leader or manager? Personally, I think it's your ability to connect with people and make them want to follow you. A lot of people have everything on the resume, have the job title, but people don't willingly follow them. And the way to get to that point where people want to follow you is to show that you're invested in their success. Set up your employees to succeed. Show interest in what show interest in what matters to them. Make sure that they know that they're in consideration for the opportunities that are up and coming in your organization. And the only way you could do that is by really knowing them. As a CEO, especially when your company is less than 50 people, your job is to know every single one of them and what makes them tick. And your job is to make them feel like they're part of something. If you're able to do that, you're going to have a very efficient workforce. I'm going to ask you another one as well, actually, because I think it's be interesting to get your perspective. So what experience have you had that challenged a convention or exploded a myth? Early in my career, I worked a lot with celebrities. And honestly, it was my dream. I've always wanted to work with celebrities. It was unbelievable to me that I'm sitting in a room and there are these people that are in movies that I admired from TV shows. And we were sitting in the same room and I was in awe. I was like, I can't believe people have these lives. You know, they're driven by limos. They go anywhere they want. And one of those really big celebrities, won't say specific names, but really, really big, had this entourage that would follow them. And it was kind of like the entourage from Entourage, except none of them really cared about it. The second he would walk out of the room, it became, you ask him, and how do we get him to do this? And how do we do that? Anytime that they would speak to women, they were all single guys, they would wait to see who he chose so they could get the leftovers. And that's how they referred to them. And it occurred to me that, wait, this person lives in a world where no one really cares about them. None of the women that they meet really care about them. They just want to be part of their life and what they do. None of the people who are supposedly their friends actually care about them. They care about what they can get from them. Maybe their parents do, though, you know, this particular one was not in a good relationship with her parents. But it kind of blew my mind. I said, you know what? Maybe this dream of being a celebrity, of being a famous person, isn't all it's cracked up to be, and maybe it wouldn't be that great. And as you work with more and more of these celebrities, it's kind of weird to see how many of them are broken. And I wonder if it's because you get there and you get broken, or you need to be broken to get there. But an amazing percentage of them are broken. What's your favorite under-the-radar networking hack? So I view networking as marketing, and you're the product. If you want to network with people, you need to become appealing to them. So just like when you apply for a job, you modify your resume to fit the job requirements. Make sure you understand who the people you're trying to reach are and what the right channel to do that is. One of the things that people try to reach me today for investments and send me a message on LinkedIn. Why in their right mind would they think to join the groups of the 50 messages you get today from service providers and automated bots that send you a message about it? Why would you want to pitch someone that way when their email address is right straight there on their profile, right? When I work at Silverstein Properties and my phone number is on my email signature, 
when you can look and see if there's somebody who knows us in common. And yet every morning I wake up to 20 or 30 of these messages and I just don't have time to look at them. So I think you have to shift the way you think and be more systematic about it. If you marketed a product, you would say, okay, what's the message I want to get across and what's the channel to get it through and think about networking the same way. What's the best way to get to this person and what would they want to hear that would actually get them interested? One example is people will use introductions, but they don't bother with the part of why should they care that I want to meet them? Like, okay, I know I see Dan or Andy, you know somebody and I ask you, hey, can you introduce me to them? That's only half the job. Can you introduce me to them and tell them that I saw that they posted that they need celebrities? I know celebrities, right? Can you give you the material? But People just don't do it. And I don't know if that's a hack. It's almost common sense in a degree, but people just don't do it. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. So we're pretty much time. I'm going to go into the final question now and just want to see if there's any content, blogs, books, podcasts that you particularly enjoy reading or consuming and that you want to share with the audience. Yeah, I love listening to Pivot, which is Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. I think everyone probably has heard of it from this group. If you want to read an ancient but amazing book, there's one called Buzz Marketing by Mark Hughes. It's way before the days of influencer marketing and all that stuff. And it talks about creating viral content in a pre-internet world. But literally every single word, <coughs> sorry, every single word in that book is a gospel to me. It informs every marketing decision I make. The way that they thought about the different campaigns that they ran applies 1,000% to today. And I have read hundreds of marketing books. There isn't a single book on the planet that makes you think the way that they think. My only comparison is like the rich dad, poor dad to investing in real estate to this, except this really gives you the tools to do it. Any tools or products that you use that make your life easier day to day? Yeah, I'm very lazy. So I use something called Clara Labs. It's an AI bot that will set up my appointments. <laughs> I know that's very lazy, but basically she'll schedule everything for you. She knows how to go into Calendly. Great tool. So very big fan of that. And yeah, that's it. That's the one that I definitely swear by. How can people contact you if they want to get in touch? Not LinkedIn from the sounds of things, at least not from the, uh, the, the <laughs> You can chat go on my there. LinkedIn and see that my email address is in my profile. Yeah. If you're looking for venture stuff, it's gill at stardustventures.us. If you're looking for real estate stuff or if you're prop tech and you want to partner with Silverstein, it's G-E-Y-A-L at silvprop.com, like Silverstein Properties, the first four letters, .com. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Gil... It's been amazing. Yeah, I really appreciate you joining us. It's been an awesome show. Plenty of nuggets. Thanks for coming on. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much fun. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.